So welcome to the panel on archives and activism, the contemporary turn. Uh, I'm Emily Drabinsky. I'm a librarian at Long Island University, Brooklyn, and I'm the editor of a book series called Gender and Sexuality and Librarianship. I'm very pleased to be here with three contributors to a volume that will come out in the spring titled Sometimes You Have to Make Your Own History, Documenting Feminist and Queer Activism in the 21st Century. So that will be out on the spring from an independent press called Library Juice Press. So I'll give a little intro, and then the three of them will talk in order, and then we'll have some questions. Uh, first, we'll hear from Jenna Friedman. She is the Director of Research and Instructional Services and the Zine Librarian at Barnard College. Uh, she makes zines and volunteers with Radical Reference, a collective of library workers that sees to the research needs of activists and independent journalists. Uh, next, Alana Kumbir will speak. She's a research and instruction librarian and a co-organizer of the Boston Radical Reference Collective, a queer variety arts performer and a zine maker. And then last, Kate Eichhorn is a failed librarian, so she had to become an academic instead, and she is an assistant professor of culture and media studies at the New School. So I'll turn it over to Jenna. So because I'm here at Barnard, I, I feel like I have to um, give a special thanks to the Instructional Media and Technology Services Department, who is recording this event, um, student workers and a staff member, so yay, I'm at. Okay, um, so anyone who read the description of this panel um, could be a little disappointed because I had to, um, due to time constraints, had to narrow the scope of my presentation. I'm going to talk mostly about zines, which honestly was my true motivation behind this panel anyway, <laughs> which was to make sco activist scholars more aware of zines as a resource for studying the lives of contemporary women and girls. So as we know from Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, well-behaved women seldom make history, but neither do their lives and contributions nor those of their even their ill-behaved counterparts get collected, preserved, and made available without the deliberate efforts of those who select and describe archival and special collections materials. Honor Sack's writing in Library Trends said that the emergence of feminism inspired scholars to identify and revise assumptions about women's experience that were pervasive in the traditional historical narrative. Then she says, what I did not know about were the ways that such political transformations similarly affected archivists and librarians to rethink their own professional conventions. Do scholar activists think about where the resources that support their work come from? Um, so today I'm interested in talking about girls' history, which is even more challenging to uncover in archives than women's. I'm particularly interested in girls, activist girls, telling their own stories not as reported or case-studied, but with the full agency self-publishing provides. Since the rise of Riot Girl and the personal zine in the 1990s, the job has gotten easier. Because I'm a li librarian, um, I had to show you this screen. So all of the zines at the Barnard Library Zine Collection are listed in Clio, the Columbia Library's online catalog. And you'll see that I gave you um, an example of doing a form or genre term search and truncation and Boolean logic. Um, but using my search, <laughs> you would find all of the zines that were in the Barnard Library zine collection that were about um, activism and girls. So I have keywords on teen, girl, polit politic, radical, queer, activist, etc. Women's zine collections and women's cultural institutions with zine holdings, bringing unedited, unmediated voices of young women activists into the academy, have been established at institutions around the U.S. and the rest of the world. It's sometimes easiest to define zines by showing rather than telling, so I'm going to just show an example of five different zines by girls and young women held at Barnard. 
The first one is Danger Hole. Is Lucy Doyle here? I, she told me that she might come. Um, she was a New Jersey teenager um, who wrote this scene. Um, but I want to ask you to think about the question, where else can you find an 18-year-old's writing on an academic library shelf? Can you even find it at a public library? She might be there, but she's probably, you know, uh, being uh, case-studied or analyzed or something. It won't really be her own voice and her own self-expression. So Lucy writes in her intro, we are constantly questioning girl and femininity. What is it like to be ladylike, unladylike? And which is the greater achievement? Is there a difference between feminism and feminist, girl and woman? Every generation, every individual has been forced to discover the answers for herself. And yet the same images, same expectations are pushed on us. Enough. This is devoted to you. Redefine girl for yourself. So we see Lucy being conscious of herself as part of one generation, wrestling with the same questions that the previous generations or waves have dealt with before her. She may be thinking of the second wave, or she may be thinking of the 1990s Riot Girl movement, um, which I call every girl, or I, well, I don't call Riot Girl every girl, but I like to think of the zines in our collection as every girl zines. So representing not like the famous people of Riot Girl, but just sort of everyone documenting her own life. When she says in their introduction, this is devoted to you, I just want you to think about who she's speaking to. Is she talking to her peers, to history? So consciously, I think she's talking to the former, to the people that are reading her zines, who are probably you know, her friends or people that are like-minded, um, or even her enemies, because she calls it danger, whole. I think that's kind of an aggressive title. Um, but she's also talking to the latter. She's talking to history, whether she knows it or not, um, partially because I have her zine in the Barnard Library zine collection. Um, the author describes herself, I'm a writer, publisher, photographer, punker chick, artist, athlete, lacrosse, tennis 10 years, and I run away every chance I get. Activist, feminist, designer, zinester, warrior, warrior, lover, girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, goddess, scum, hero, degenerate, Patient, therapist, caretaker, victim, minority, gem, hot young thing, pill popper, best friend, close girl, a close friend, acquaintance, dreamer, doer, complete mess, professional, ex-user, hardcore, girl, girl with three R's, woman, child, adult, teenager, person. And each of these words is written in lowercase letters, but each descriptor is underlined by hand. So I love, I mean, what's so important to me about zines is the visual elements of them, and that you can, I mean, that they're lowercase and underlines, like that's just such a crazy contradiction. Um, <laughs> and so um, uh, the other things that are included in this issue, it, that it's cut and paste style. She reviews a Gorilla Girls book. She has song lyrics. Um, one thing I think that's neat is there's um, a contributed essay about masculinity and femini femininity, and then a quiz whose responses identify you as a feminazi, Daddy's little girl next door, femme fatale slash school slut, white trash or tomboy, thereby showing the choices that she feels are, that are available to her and her friends. Um, and just so you know, Lucy is now um, in college and she's a leader in a feminist um, organization on her campus. So the next zine I want to look at is Queerian. So um, discussing queerness. Uh, this zine um, is about growing up queer and Korean in Kansas. It was written um, by a Harvard student in December 2009. 
and it was quarter size, so this is important to know also that it was like little and pink, um, and it was entirely handwritten. So home from college, um, wise traditional parents are giving her a hard time. Is she here? She said she might come. No. Um, uh, so her parents, they're, they're very traditional, so they want her to have a boyfriend, but she's too young to have a boyfriend. And so she jokes, well, what if I had a girlfriend? And her father says, you know that if you ever became a lesbian, if you fell in love with a girl, well, I'm your father and I love you. But from that point on, you would not be my daughter. You would no longer be a part of this family. So there's a value to these words in the library, not just to scholars, but to students, to people that are questioning or experimenting or exploring their own, or feeling alone, feeling like their dad just said the same thing to them. So um, I feel like it's, it's, zines have a special place in the academy um, for the activism of scholars, but also just for the activism of young women who are here. I'll read one thing else that she said. She's trying to reconcile her queer and Asian identities. Because I feel like being queer does not fit in with my concept of what it means to be Asian. And that is bullshit. Because if I'm Asian and I'm queer, then how can it follow that being queer and being Asian are incompatible? Am I inhabiting some impossible contradiction? Is there really only one way of being Asian? Can I not have an identity where I'm Asian American, queer, female, middle class, young, etc., all at once, all in one? And, you know, I know these that conversation, like... Anyone who's taken, you know, the intro to women's studies class or intro to Asian studies, like, you've probably articulated that, but I feel like there's such an important value in reading it in wise, handwritten zine. It just locates it differently, and you're receiving it differently. You're getting it peer-to-peer, um, and you're discovering it along with her in a different way than when you're taught such a, such a thing in a class. The next zine is um, about parenting. A lot of zines are about parenting. Um, So this scene is called Empower, A Young Mom is Taking Control. Is anyone in the room nervous about the idea of, like, teen pregnancy being an option, an alternative to abortion? (laughs) So, I mean, like, this might actually, like, freak some, some, you know, even some radical folks out. And so I just love that that these young women are doing this, Um, the radical idea that one reproductive right is having a child and that youth doesn't preclude that right. It's DIY, it's self-empowering, it's peer education, and it has sound-specific advice. There's this whole section on um, how to tell your parents you're pregnant. But one thing I want you to pay attention to, and this is where I'm just touting myself as an activist in the academy, I want you to notice the table of contents that I pasted in there. I personally typed that into the library catalog painstakingly. It's really annoying. You have to do this delimiter T title slash delimiter R author to get all that information in there. Um, But to me, that's my activism. This is how I'm contributing to the girl revolution and my zine cataloging colleagues all all around the world that are, are putting this information in the catalog because this is not just in Clio. So you can see the Columbia Library's online catalog, but it's also in WorldCat. Um, so someone, this makes it easily available for um, someone to borrow from another library. So you can see it's in two locations. It's at Barnard, so someone could request this via ILL, and we'd send it off to them. So yay, activist catalogers. <laughs> um, Oh, and I also want to read this one little quote from the end. It ends with resources and a statement. 
If you enjoyed this zine and felt it was important to you, tell someone at the place where you found it and ask them to make more copies for other young mothers to find. Please copy this zine and give it to as many young mamas and pregnant women as you know. I interpret that as fuck copyright, um, <laughs> which is an essential element to um, zine culture. The next zine I want to talk about discusses race, which is a really important discussion that happens in zines. Even though zines have been not unjustly accused in riot girl culture as well as being overwhelmingly middle class and white, but there was a really strong um, group of women, and still is, that are of color or of um, uh, people who write about class and all sorts of issues. So Mimi T. Wen um, is now an Asian Studies and Gender and Women's Studies professor at the University of Illinois, but at the time she was 23. And um, I, asked, I asked her and some of the other contributors what um, evolution of a race riot meant to them. And she says, it was immensely important to me to make race riot in order to both reconcile and recognize the good and the bad aspects of this troubled scene, both of which I experienced in such extreme ways after I began to write about race and racism in punk, especially because it was and still is so formative to how I understand um, and I want to move through the world. I also thought of the compilation as a goodbye and a gift to all the punks of color I imagined might stumble across the compilation after I had left the scene so that they would know that they were not alone, that we had been there all along. I suppose I especially imagined the zine as an archive and later the project directory in the second comp that would make a particular activist intervention in the history of punk. Of course, the compilation is also why I didn't end up leaving punk at all. Now, this zine, she, Mimi and her contributors changed punk. They changed it. Like, that's just, to me, so exciting that this, like, piece of paper, like, changed an entire movement. One of the other contributors, Lauren Jade Martin, wrote the most beautiful thing. Being a contributor to Race Riot made me feel like I was part of a rad community of anti-racist punks, activists, and quasi-intellectuals. I'd always romanticized the people and communities who'd been involved with radical feminists, feminism, feminist 80s anthologies, journals, and presses like This Bridge Called My Back, Homegirls, Conditions, Kitchen Table Press, etc. Zine compilations like Race Riot made me realize that I didn't need to go back in time and be BFF with Barbara Smith, Audre Lorde, Sherry Moraga, or Dorothy Allison. Zinesters like Mimi Nguyen, Helen Liu, and Bianca Ortiz were just as radical, brilliant, and fierce. It's awesome. <laughs> um, the last one I want to talk about is familiar to any. Are there any Barnard folks in the room who were here in 1996 when there was a strike at graduation? <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> so the, um, the uh, um, union staff at Barnard were on strike, um, and Sasha Kagan was kind of pissed about how that was handled. So she wrote about it in her zine. She also wrote about it in The Village Voice, but she wrote a longer piece in her zine, which she writes was written, was reprinted and revised with permission from me. So more fuck copyright. Gotta love it. Um, so I just want to let you know some of what was in this issue of Cup Size, it was also cut and paste, but it was desktop published as well. There were lots of letters to the editor. There's a lot of community in zines and dialogue and back and forth. Her focus was on bisexuality. Oh, and I'm calling this a social justice zine, but you'll see that there's a lot of um, 
Alana will be happy. A lot of interdisciplinary focus in zines. You know, the queer zine is also about race. The social justice zine is also about sexuality. Um, they talk about things like growing up, which to I think this piece was contributed by Tara means buying a futon. Um, but we've all been there, right? Like buying your first bed or futon was huge. Um, and we need to document that. That has to go in the archives. Um, <laughs> they talk about Helen Keller finding out she was a radical. Um, they talk about blizzard propaganda. Anyone who was in New York City during Hurricane Irene, propaganda. Um, they talk about the sadness of graduation day in addition to the like, you know, um, activism. They talk about their favorite things, their ads, reviews, interviews, um, talking about a real estate summer job and a Mad Lib. Um, and Sasha's article about the, um, about the strike, she says, please consider this article the commencement address I so sorely wished someone had made. I just want you to know that, you know, I picked five zines that I thought were representative, interesting, and important, but zines talk about so much else. Um, we have hundreds of zines on all of these other topics. I'm really excited because I was just talking to a new um, uh, women's and gender studies professor who's doing a lot of work on sex work, and I did a search for him in Clio and sent him a list of like 30 zines that are about sex work. So we'll see if we can get him to focus on that or to use them in his class. Um, zines are personal, political. Sometimes they're personal political. Um, there are also lots of other types of zines. Um, I don't want to like take credit for Barnard having the only zine collection in the world because we surely don't. Um, Duke beat us to it. Um, there's one in London. Smith has a collection. Tulane has a collection. And and uh, at the Newcomb College Institute table that's going to be back in the Diana, um, we have some samples of zines. And you can also come over to the Barnard Library and get a tour. So or just look at the zines on the first floor. Um, sorry, you know, I made this slideshow, and then when you upload it to Google, it all goes to hell. So I promise you, it looks really good in my slides. <laughs> and I was going to make handouts, but it seems silly to make so many. Um, I want to... I also... I was originally going to talk about um, what might be the zine predecessors, and I was really, you know, trying to find what there might be that girls had made that talked about girl activism. Um, and so there are some things, I mean, but scrapbooks tend to have newspaper articles, like, for example, about suffrage or something else, or diaries, but they're really different in content and focus than a zine because you're writing for a different audience. Um, I think pamphlets and broadsides could be some of the closest parallels, and those do have a long history, but in the teeny, minuscule, ineffective, terrible, bad librarian research that I did, um, <laughs> I didn't find a lot like that really focused on the work of girls. There's stuff by women, and there may be stuff by girls, but they're not really thinking of themselves as girls. They're just like part of the women's movement. Um, and I think that's, that's really changing. So I contacted archives at all the Seven Sisters, Mills, Tamament, Labadee, the Lesbian History Archives, and I spent a couple hours in the Barnard Archives. I thought I saw Marsha here, college archivist. Yes, yay. So Marsha helped me with that, but I didn't do nearly enough research, and she can attest that I was a bad researcher. Um, <laughs> but I did get to look at some stuff that she found me. Um, I also searched Archives Grid. I asked some friends that are you know women's studies scholars. Um, and I, I just didn't find something that was really parallel to zines. Um, but I do actually think that this could be a whole book-length work, is studying this, these kinds of works. 
And what gets me excited is, is imagining, like, what if the girls in the um, garment unions in the 19-teens had been self-publishing? Like, how exciting would that have been? And, like, just that would have really given us a great insight into what was going on for them as girls being organized by men probably most of the time. Because of, you know, perhaps my failure to find um, earlier precedents for zine-ish publishing, or perhaps because there really aren't, I conclude that Kathleen Hanna was correct in saying that Riot Girl rewrote feminism and activism in punk rock rebellion and youth-centered voice that was felt to be missing from forms of feminism available in the 1990s, which I saw in an article written by Kate Angel, which um, that quote originally came from Riot Girl, Revolution Girl Style Now. All right, I guess I won't get to talk about this, but I'll just say... Archivists, activists, how do collections of radical materials come to exist? Do they just, like, show up? Do they just appear like the burritos show up in the freezer for me or the clean laundry shows up in the dresser drawers for my spouse? Um, <laughs> no, we put them there. Um, <laughs> I hope that, that scholars will think of, of archivists as creators and facilitators and collaborators. Um, Okay, and I hope that someone will give us money and that our administrators and grant writers will, will show us the money. Oh, my God, can I just say one more thing, Emily, before I, I go away? This is where I just go back and I, I bitch a little bit. Um, so I feel like in, I read a lot of articles for this presentation, which I didn't quote more than two of them, but the things that they said about doing archival research, these are some of the terms they used for finding stuff. Random, chaotic, Higgledy piggledy, <laughs> arbitrariness, things that surfaced using an, using a passive voice, um, records that were otherwise buried or unearthing things, and I feel like that's where you know um, ac archivists are activists. Like this shit does not surface. It's not random or chaotic. We work really hard to help that stuff get out there and to help scholars get to it. So, you know, I feel like. We do a lot of work. We may not do enough. We need to do it better. Um, but it's sort of just like I just got a little steamed as I was reading through that and being like, higgledy piggledy? I don't think so. Um, so, okay, this is me. Um, this is how to reach me, and this is how to find the talk again if you choose to relive it. Um, you'll see I was really careful about getting permission for everything because I feel like zinesters are not given enough credit because they seem ephemeral or so DIY or punk or whatever. So even if they want to fuck copyright, I want to at least give them credit. I want to be polite. So, all right, that's what I have to say. Thank you very much. So today I'm going to be talking about two um, queer grassroots archiving projects. And the first is Datum, which was an exhibit and an installation performance by a woman named Aliza Shapiro that took place in May 2010 over a weekend at the Meme Gallery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the second is the Queer Zine Archive Project, um, which I'll just refer to as QZAP, which is a collection of more than 900 queer zines, over 300 of which are freely available on the archives website. And QZAP, while it exists online, also exists in file cabinets in its co-founder's dining room in Milwaukee. So they exist outside of conventional repositories. Um, they aren't affiliated with institutions, they aren't run by professionally trained archivists, and they're accessible with little or no gatekeeping. Their success depends on the knowledge, passion, and collective investment of their constituencies. They do the work we expect of archives, so they document queer experiences and build collections that represent some realities of queer lives, but they do more than document and represent. 
They enact a politics that promotes open access, resists capitalist logics of ownership and scarcity, and values collaborative knowledge production. These are, unlike Jenna's archives, highly unruly ones. They pose alternatives to conventional archival practices and help us imagine other ways of working with and in archives. In this talk, I, fo I focus on two things that I think they're doing that are particularly transformative, um, their participatory approach and the openness of their collections. So archivists, the ones that I'm thinking about here now are the professionally trained ones who work in conventional archives. When they collect, arrange, and describe papers, they determine users' access to them. As they gain physical and intellectual control over a collection, they stabilize the order of files, document the collection's origins, and through description, interpret the meaning of records for users. Archivists are empowered to choose which papers to preserve, how to represent records, records to us, and how to provide access to collections. Historically, archives have collected the papers of the powerful and have not developed collections that represent the experiences of multiple and diverse constituencies, at least not on terms that represent those people as people, not objects of property or surveillance or policing. Um, so in an attempt to better represent more than just the most powerful few, some archivists are developing collections that document the experiences of specific racial or ethnic groups, subcultures, or minority constituencies. One goal of these collections is to preserve um, what Shilton and Srinivasan call empowered narratives. And what they say is, these are records and histories spoken directly by traditionally marginalized communities embedded within the local experience, practice, and knowledge of that community. So learning from scholars and feminists in other fields who take positionality, power relations, and multiple epistemologies into account, these archivists seek to involve community members in record selection, description, and organization. And so ideally, these collaborations result in more representative collections, yield reliable descriptions and nuanced interpretations, and preserve the articulation of community identity in the collection. So within the archival profession, participatory approaches to collection building and description are still considered experimental and are far from the norm. Um, and Shulton and Srinivasan, the people I quoted, they published an article in 2007 arguing for this approach, and that's kind of the most clearly stated one. <clears throat> Um, we know that collaborative archiving has existed well before the professionals got involved. The archival literature has not adequately engaged histories of grassroots LGBT and feminist archives and has not taken up these examples as models for practice. The profession hasn't accounted for what fellow panelist Kate describes as the rich histories of community-based organizing that witnessed women, often with no formal archival training and few resources, accumulating and preserving the documentary traces of their private lives and public activism. So Datum and QZAP belong to this history. Using strategies and methods of their own design without having professional or educational training, um, they've already preserved empowering narratives. They're fostering the articulation of personal and community identities and are documenting the everyday lives of queer people. So before talking about how they deviate from the norm, I think it's helpful to just have a couple of vocabulary words to understand where we're coming from. So the first is this concept of provenance, which is central to Western archival practice. And this is the history of a set of records, and it includes information about the creation, the ownership, and the transfer. It establishes boundaries around collections, as records and papers of the same provenance are kept together as an entity. So if you donated your papers, instead of being divided up by different subjects, they would stay together as your thing. The other principle that I'm interested in, original order, refers to the order in which a creator kept the records. So unless the records are really disorganized when they come into the archive, the archivist will respect. However, you, know, you may have kept your papers because the idea is that there's meaning in this context. So there's something we can tell about um, how people thought about their knowledge structures, what kind of categories they used, um, and that it's important to, to kind of preserve that. 
So both provenance and original order are centered around the idea of an individual or a clearly defined group as the creator and organizer of the records. And what's important here for our purposes is that original order is understood as something stable. It's an order that emerged in the context of someone's daily life, and the meaning that matters is the one that's imposed by that creator. So for people like Eliza Shapiro, who is a producer in the Boston area, I would not be surprised if at least one other person in this room knows Eliza. Um, she's, her network is vast. Um, she puts on a lot of shows. She's a real active kind of creator and instigator of queer cultural life in the Boston area and beyond. She's a drag performer. Um, she is deeply enmeshed in her community. And the notion of original order is really limited because for this individual and community, organization is not necessarily a solitary activity. It can be a collaborative practice, a social practice, and one that doesn't necessarily stabilize the order of meaning. So I'm just going to describe Datum here really quickly. Um, this is Eliza. Uh, if you knew Eliza, you'd know that this is a genre of photograph that she takes of herself, um, often with other people. Um, in this case, she's documenting her own documentation. Um, she runs a website called truthserum.org. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Um, but this was the show at Datum. She basically set up a timeline along the wall. She had suitcases out full of photographs um, and asked anyone who came in who wanted to to go through the photographs, look at her personal archive. There were many suitcases. And she had set up this timeline along the wall. Um, and we basically just put index cards for each year and asked everyone who came into the gallery to first help us fill in the timeline with a photo representative of a given year, they could choose whatever it was. Um, and so here we have some people who came, um, and you can see they're wearing the white gloves. So uh, they were given some basic you know, kind of instruction in how to handle photographs safely. But basically, they were empowered to just dig through. Um, there I am digging through without gloves. Not good, I know. Scandalous. This is what happens when you open your archive to people. Um, and you can also see that um, if you look towards the back of the photo, you can tell that the gallery like opens out onto the street. So anyone can walk in. There's no security here. Uh, it could rain, but there are the suitcases. Um, so what's happening is you know, people are looking through. They're examining. They may or may not be putting something up on the timeline. So at the same time that Eliza and the datum participants were assembling these sub-collections, the idea is that you could choose. You know, if there were things that you saw in her archive that were interesting to you that you wanted to add to a particular year, you could do that. So there were a lot of photos of cats. There were a lot of photos of, because Eliza's an event promoter, you know, um, her and others with certain like local or indie celebrities. Um, a lot of people, if they found themselves in the archive, um, they put themselves up there. Uh, and there was also a wide, a lot of, you know, because these photos went back for Lisa's whole life, you know, her gender presentation changed over time. So a big favorite was finding pictures of Eliza from when she was really girly looking. She's now a very solidly queer bush woman. Um, so going back and looking at her earlier sort of gender presentations was big fun. Um, so at the same time that they're doing this, so that people are putting things on the timeline, they're also helping her organize the photographs into her preferred chronological order. In the both and space of the exhibit, participants had the chance to make her life meaningful on their terms and on hers. By inviting participants to exhibit her photos, she facilitated a representation of her life that she couldn't have created on her own. It was a fitting way of representing her dedication to creating spaces for queer cultural production and community articulation. Through communal engagement with her documents, we were able to access material evidence of our shared past. So more than one meaning came to matter during the exhibit, and though the photos were returned to their proper envelopes after the show was over, the exhibit allowed for a temporary elaboration upon the order of life chronology. 
So I'm drawing attention to these practices because they suggest that we can have it both ways. Different modes of organizing can exist at once, and we can learn something from their coexistence. The straightforward chronological organizing scheme makes it really easy for anyone to come in off the street and participate. You can look at the dates on the envelopes. You know how the year works. Um, and you know, as long as you agree to wear the white cotton gloves, you're fine. Um, we'll just see if there's... <clears throat> so here's an example of what you know, the wall looked like once people started adding things. Um, so you can see some pictures of Eliza, many pictures not of Eliza, some pictures that you wouldn't know what they were unless you either knew her very well or it had some meaning for you. Um, over the course of the weekend, the Datum Archive became a social space, a space for hanging out with friends, for actually getting to catch Eliza at rest instead of emceeing or working a crowd or flyering, and for social worlds colliding. So her performance art friends met her drag friends, met her kinkster friends, everyone was in the same room. At Datum, archiving was a pleasure. We got to go through someone else's stuff. We discovered new to us moments in Elisa's history, and she told us stories. We found candid shots of our celebrities, like Latigra and Mary Timoney. We learned that Elisa's prom date was John Hodgman. Um, and longtime friends and loves found themselves represented in the collection. Their photos nestled near those of other lovers, pets, and home spaces. The timeline offered a public venue for making these histories visible, for constellating and claiming queer kinship and community. Its function was more than chronological and made certain queer temporalities apparent. Photos depicting Eliza's enduring intimate relations were juxtaposed with images documenting one-night event-centered connections. And the impermanence of her own gender presentation was evident because and only through the fact that she's been consistently documenting for her whole life. So like Datum, the Cruising Archive Project, and what I'm just showing is um, the screen for when you go to the website, the gallery, the point of entry for the zines. Um, the Cruising Archive Project invites participation from its users and values open access to its collection. Founded by Chris Wilde and Milo Miller, the mission of the Queer Zine Archive Project is to establish a living history, and I'm quoting here. It's an archive of past and present queer zines um, that encourages current and emerging zine publishers to continue to create. The primary function of QZAP is to provide a free online searchable database of the collection with links allowing users to download electronic copies of the zines. By providing access to the historical canon of queer zines, they hope to make them more accessible to diverse communities and reach wider audiences. And feminist media scholar and QZAP collective member, member Mara Williams um, really aptly describes QZAP as a promiscuous archive. She locates the archive's promiscuity in its code, since it runs on open source software, in the free downloadability of zines on the site, in the intergenerational transfer of knowledge across the old and new zines, in the openness of the collective members' relationships, and in Miller and Wilde's understanding of zines as just one of many strategies for queer resistance. The zines in the collection are stored in the file cabinets in their house, um, and the digitized counterparts are, are available for free download as PDFs at qzap.org. The collective defines queer zines broadly, stating that if the content of the zine is queer, then the zine is queer. Additionally, if the creator identifies as queer, then the zine is also queer. QZAP is what professional archivists would call an artificial collection, um, a set of documents that are brought together because they have a subject in common. And unlike what archivists would call an archival fonds, which is a set of papers that are identified with an individual and are donated at a given point in time and kind of like represent the cumulative output and collection of that person. Artificial collections may come from many sources and may be assembled over time. So in QZAP, this happens because zines are donated issue by issue. Um, they're donated by named and anonymous creators. They come in in a variety of formats. And for most creators, it's likely that zines are just one avenue in which they're doing their work. 
There are a few donated subcollections that stick together that you know, were brought in as individual collections and they kind of demonstrate this interesting tension between the artificial collection and the fonds because if you get stuff from a zinester who's queer that has a lot of like radical environmental zines or anarchist zines but were not made by queers, those are typically sort of outside the bounds of the collection and they don't have room for them. But at the same time, it'd be really cool to know, you know what's the full scope. So that's a tension that they deal with. Um, in both the file cabinets and on the website, QZAPs, zines, and ephemeral print materials are organized alphabetically by title. So there's no principle of original order at work here, and the documentation of provenance is really limited to the information that a contributor provides, or to the information that's in the zines themselves. So I'm going to just, this is looking at the screenshot of one zine, um, Sassy Frass Circus by Jenna B. And you'll see that um, she's, she has contributed her own information here. So in conventional archives, documents are described by archivists who may or may not consult with creators. QZAP takes a collaborative approach to description, inviting contributors to suggest keywords to associate with their zines. So this terminological openness is one of QZAP's unruly practices. The lack of a standardized or controlled vocabulary, like the subject terms in a library catalog, um, may make it harder to co-locate zines in the archive that are on the same subject. But it means that when people submit zines, they get to define them on their own terms. And it means that when people are searching for zines, they can also use their own kind of familiar terminology. Um, the other thing that I like is that in the case of Sassy Frass Circuses, um, Jenna was able to locate herself in Resistors Town, Maryland, um, and was able to you know, kind of create this pretty large enumeration of possible key terms. Um, so that people coming into the archive looking for any of these things could. Um, and the only tricky part might be if they spelled comics with a CS instead of an X. So this is the, this is the tension between the controlled vocabulary and the keywords, but there it is. Um, so like Datum and many other contemporary DIY feminist archives, the kind that um, Kate has investigated in her work, um, QZAP is simultaneously an archive of the past, the present, and the future. Zines may be donated by individuals who were once involved in queer zine subcultures and are no longer participants. But many of QZAP's zines are donated shortly after they're created, uploaded as PDF files, dropped off at zine fest tables, or hand-delivered by mail or by house guest. The QZAP Collective's pedagogical activities, its workshops, guest lectures, internships, exhibits, enact its commitment to encourage current and emerging zine publishers to continue to create. As it offers creators a place to archive their not-yet-published zines, QZAP becomes a site for the articulation of a queer future. By broadly defining queer zines and welcoming donations from people who self-select into the archive, and I mean, I think here we see the legacy of the Lesbian History Archive, for example. If you feel you belong in the archive, you're there. Um, QZAP allows contributors to locate their work and by extension their experiences in a particular historical, political, subcultural, and archival context. And it's important to just note, to, like, note about how context matters here. Um, if you remember that in traditional archives, the context that matters the most is the context in which the records were created and used before they entered the archive. Um, and provenance and original order are designed to preserve that information. That kind of assumes that the archive has a sort of decontextualizing effect, that you need to really preserve this order before you bring the thing into the archive where it's going to lose it. Um, in the case of QZAP, the mutual effects of the zine on the archive and the archive on the zines help us understand that archives themselves provide a new context and meaning. And since I have a few minutes, I'll just say that, you know, in my case, I work on a farm zine that has no legible queer content. Um, so if you picked it up at the farm stand, you wouldn't know that it was made 
by queers. You wouldn't know that the farmers were necessarily queer and trans. You would have no idea because it's just about vegetables and chickens and recipes. Um, but the moment that it enters the queer zine archive, you know, it's up there now on the website, we know it's a queer zine. So that's a, case, it's a really obvious case, but it's definitely a case where suddenly the context has changed the meaning. Um, and I think we often forget that about archives, that they have the power to really shape what's in there. Um, so both QZAP and Datum preserve documents and make histories legible, but they also shape the experiences of their users in the present and into the future. Aliza Shapiro and members of the QZAP Collective challenge our fundamental assumptions about archive, that they're necessarily closed spaces, that records should be treated as property, and that they are for researchers with scholarly interests. Though they are exceptional, they remind us that we can ask certain questions of all archives, and I would encourage you to ask these questions of the archives in which you research. Um, how does the work of organizing, describing, and interpreting the documents happen? Who's involved in this work? And why is it often rendered invisible or reduced to just a short statement in a finding aid? So are there collaborators who got to do this, who got to make this particular kind of knowledge? Um, and how does a queer and feminist archival practice extend beyond the preservation of queer and women's histories? So not just to think about these as the objects of the archive, but also basically, you know, how can we articulate our politics in methods, in policies, in relationships? Um, these things that exist outside of the conventional archives, QZAP and Datum, remind us that archives aren't just repositories for information, evidence, or, you know, in current theorizing, feelings. Um, but they're also generative spaces, laboratories for politics, for pleasures, and collective engagement. I guess if we can think about um, Jenna's paper as really looking at like what's in a particular collection, um, and Alana's paper um, giving us some sense of two different um, collections. My paper is trying to take the whole question of contemporary feminist archives um, and put it into a broader um, context. So why, why are these um, collections and individual materials um, relevant to broader debates that we've been having in the feminist community, particularly uh, if I want to put a time frame on it, I'm sort of thinking about this um, since the early 1990s. And so my, my paper um, will, you know, start from that place. Um, in October 2010, Susan Faludi published an article in Harper's Magazine. Did anyone read this article? I've been waiting uh, a year <laughs> to go on this rant. And it's happening now, right here at your conference. In October 2010, Susan Faludi published an article in Harper's Magazine on the subject of feminism's ritual matricide. In summary, Faludi argues that American feminism has always been and remains structured by a matricidal impulse. Feminism's self-inflicted death drive not only has a long history, but according to Faludi, permeates nearly all aspects of feminist practice and theory. In keeping with her previous polemics on feminism, she targets academic feminism and specifically what she variously describes as post-structuralist and post-modern feminism as the primary culprits. And this is just a passage um, from her Harper's um, article for those who didn't have the pleasure of reading it. The academic mother load, the academic mother load is like you all sitting in this room, like gender studies and women's studies. Okay, the academic mother load is in danger of being decommissioned by the increasing disconnect between practical political feminism and academic feminist theory, 
and by the rise of a post-structuralist philosophy in gender studies that prefers the deconstructing of female experiences to the linkages and legacies of women's history in regards generational dynamics and even the categories of women and men as artifices to perform and discard. And she says that uh, these two legacies have created a generational Donnybrook where the transmission of power repeatedly fails and feminism's heritage is repeatedly hurled onto the scrap heap. What gets passed on is a predisposition to dispossess, a legacy of no legacy. So in just a few sentences, Susan Felitti expresses a set of assumptions about contemporary feminism that much of my own research on feminist archives, history, um, and contemporary activism directly calls into question. She claims that the so-called academic motherload is at risk due to in increasing disconnect between practical political feminism and academic feminist theory, thereby implying that the threat to feminist scholarship is, an in is internal conflict um, rather than external forces, including the far-reaching effects of neoliberal restructuring, not only on the feminist culture industry, but also on higher education. Um, she further assumes that somewhere in a mythical feminist past, praxis, politics, and theory were connected, at least more than they are now. Um, and finally, and most significantly from my perspective, Faludi assumes that feminism's heritage has been repeatedly hurled onto the scrap heap. So our legacy is one of no legacy. By the time her article was forwarded to me by a colleague, I had already encountered her latest theory on the state of contemporary feminism. Faludi had tested this argument at a conference hosted by the Gender Studies Program at the New School earlier the same year. And listening to Faludi's talk, I was struck by its incompatibility with my own experience of and research on contemporary feminism. While Faludi, self-appointed spokeswoman for the feminist movement since the early 1990s, may be unable to imagine women of different generations knowing each other outside the lens of mother-daughter relationships with all the psychic and social baggage of their traditional family. Um, as a queer woman, my intergener intergenerational relationships with women have never been confined by such familial roles. The older women in my life, both queer and straight, have been just as likely to assume the roles of terrifying mentor, embarrassing crush, or quirky <laughs> friend as they have been to stand in as mothers. And none of these relationships have been first and foremost defined by conflict, let alone incited thoughts of ritual matricide. <laughs> <clears throat> Even when I have resented their advice, which is quite often actually, and rejected their politics, I've remained fiercely protective of what my feminist elders represent and grateful for everything they've made possible in my personal and professional life. And for this reason, I've taken great interest, even pleasure, in combing their scrap heap, which has variously served as my research material, my entertainment, and sometimes template for imagining other ways of being in this world in the present. For many years, I worried that my fondness for earlier eras of feminist, uh, and more specifically queer feminist activism, writing and cultural production, was not only theoretically and politically problematic, but my own dirty little secret. Um, at some point in the early, uh, early in the new millennium, however, I increasingly found myself accompanied in my pining um, for an era that I'm too young to have experienced firsthand. What began as off-the-record exchanges with other women born since the late 1960s about our secret stashes of radical feminist literature and women's lib music 
eventually escalated into public art exhibits and academic panels dedicated to exploring a time of feminism um, from the perspective of not having been there. This would eventually result also in the establishment of several major collections of feminist materials that not only seek to preserve my own generation's activism and cultural production, but to do so in ways that persistent, persistently seek to align this work with legacies of feminist activism and cultural production while placing these legacies in a new light. Okay? And so I think that that's really important. The work that Jenna's engaged in, um, the work that Alana and Emily are engaged in, or someone like Kelly Wooten at, at Duke University, um, isn't simply about preserving the last 20 years of feminist activism. It's really about um, preserving it in relation to a legacy or context. In Time Binds, um, Queer Temporalities, Queer Histories, a book-length study exploring the work of my generation of queer feminist artists, Elizabeth Freeman describes this phenomenon as a form of temporal drag. Associating temporal drag with retrogression, delay, and the pull of the past on the present, she offers the concept as a way of connecting queer performativity to disavowed political histories, and especially the disavowed histories of lesbian feminism. And central to her discussion of temporal drag is a rethinking of generational dynamics outside the framework of the family. Indeed, throughout her study, Friedman makes um, uh, examples, um, uh, provides examples of feminist artists born since the late 1960s engaging directly with the ideas and iconography of their radical foremothers. But as she observes, in the work of these artists, the 1970s emerge as a scene of mass socialist, feminist, and gay liber liberationist projects retrospectively loved and hated, but also used as placeholders for thinking beyond the status quo of the 1990s and early years of the 21st century. In other words, for these artists, the past is neither something to reject nor accept without question, since they are ultimately engaged in mining the present for signs of undetonated energy from past revolutions. The gap between someone like Faludi with her sweeping generalizations about the scrap heap, onto which feminist histories are apparently repeatedly hurled, and Freeman with her open admission that the point may be to trail behind actually existing social possibilities, to be interested in the tail end of things, is not a gap easily bridged. But then Faludi and Freeman live in different worlds, and perhaps more, more precisely, they live in different times. And these differences are by no means inconsequential. Faludi's inability to recognize that contemporary feminism may be structured by a longing, and even, I'll put this in quotations, nostalgia for previous eras of feminism, rather than by a radical repudiation of feminist histories, is by no means unrelated to our understanding of time and history as concepts necessarily structured along the lines of the traditional heterosexual family with its inherent temporal linea uh, linearity, and Electra-inspired dramas. Um, similarly, Freeman's uh, ability to recognize that even in the 1990s, when popular accounts of feminism were actively promoting a narrative of generational divide, that something radically different was underway, is by no means unrelated to our understanding of time and history as concepts that can be unbound from traditional notions of family and history's assumed te uh, teleological tendencies. And what's important in the context of this discussion um, is that one's perception of the feminist scrap heap 
is deeply shaped by our assumptions about time and history. As Freeman observes, for the artist in her study, whose childhoods unfolded at the height of the second wave feminist movement, the 1970s are an embarrassment, but they're also something that remains to be rethought. In other words, what's cast away is not simply rejected. The scrap heap is not a site of refuse and refusal, but a complex site where the past accumulates in the present as a resource to be embraced and rejected, mined and recycled, discarded and redeployed. As such, feminism's scrap heap is both a site of objection, um, that which must be expelled, but also that which we cannot live without, and simultaneously a playground, a refuge, a scene of innovation, humor, hope, and longing. In every respect, the scrap heap is integral rather than superfluous, vital rather than stagnant, a heap of embers rather than a bed of ash. Um, I raise Freeman's study here because in many respects, the subjects of her study, mostly queer feminist visual artists, share much in common with the subjects of the book I'm, I'm currently in the process of completing, who are mostly queer feminist archivists, librarians, and do-it-yourself collectors, um, born you know, since the mid to late 1960s, so same time period. Um, to be clear, this is not to imply that the collections and collectors at the center of my own study are necessarily queer in the most obvious sense. The collections under consideration here are first and foremost defined by their feminist rather than queer orientation. Yet, um, if I may, however cautiously, on more queer from its status as a sexual identity and practice, and think about it along Jack Halberstam's lines, um, as something that just refers to non-normative logics and organizations of community, sexual identity, embodiment, and activity in space and time. There is something very queer about the collections we're talking about today. Um, and where this queerness resides has much less to do with representation, the actual content of the collections, and more to do with the tacit but by no means insignificant relationship to time and history that these collections express and enact. What makes the collections queer is a relationship to history and time that recognizes the utter contingency, even fragility, of epochs and events, and furthermore recognize how uncannily present the present may be in the past. And I also just a little aside here. Um, I, I know that, um, because a lot of us are influenced by Anne Svekovich's work and in an archive of feelings, we sort of think about the queer archive is one that's necessarily unruly or disorderly and based in the community. And I actually want to say that, that um, a lot of institutional collections can also be very queer, and they're queer in their orientation to time and history. So that I want to sort of open up that idea of what can constitute a queer archive. Um, and just a couple of talking points and examples um, from some of the feminist archives at the center of my research. Um, and I want to use these examples to further illustrate why it is that I think we can look at these archives and special collections um, not only as queer, but as feminist in a way that has nothing to do with the temporality in, in historically bound world of someone like Faludi. Um, first, I want to say that one of the key features of the feminist archives that we're talking about, and if I'm actually saying anything you guys disagree with, then you can just like <laughs> go at me in the discussion period. Um, is that they don't assume that feminist politics is te uh, teleological. Uh, there's no assumption here that feminism's gains represent a clear progression that can never be eroded. And this doesn't mean that 
they're rooted um, in an inherent paranoia or cynicism. Um, they simply recognize that we're not creating a repository of past accomplishments, but more an arsenal of tools for present forms of feminist activism. And it's interesting to note that one of the very first attempts in the 1930s, mid-1930s, to create what was called the World Center uh, for Feminist Archives, it never got off the ground, um, but there was an attempt to create this thing called the World Center for Feminist Archives. It was an explicitly feminist project. It wasn't just about um, um, archiving women's lives. Um, one of the motivations to create that archive at that time was that there was a real legitimate fear that women in Europe would have their archives destroyed. And so what was happening is that feminist activists in Europe were sending their materials to the World Center uh, for Feminist Archives in New York. And so it's interesting that if you sort of think about, I don't want to tell an origin story because I think there's probably lots of places where feminist archives first emerged. But if that's one of the origin stories of explicitly feminist archives, it's interesting because it begins in that case um, with a form of direct action in response to a very uh, depressing political moment. You know? And also that feminist archives really emerge uh, in the decline of first wave feminism. So uh, the question I'd like to put out there is, is the archival turn in contemporary feminism um, you know, since the 1990s partly about this particular political moment that we're in right now? Um, my second point um, is that feminist archives, the feminist archives we're discussing on this panel are most definitely ones that recognize history as a site of contemporary activism, and we've already had lots of you know, examples of that, and we can talk more about that in the discussion. And finally, I want to emphasize that I'm talking about feminist and not women's archives, and I think the difference is very essential. Um, these archives may not be entirely focused on the materials and lives of queer subjects per se, but they are, uh, but nor are they invested in any fixed understandings of girl or woman. Indeed, much of the work that happens in these archives and special collections, um, like Jenna's efforts to catalog these materials without reifying gender and sexual categories, is creating new ways, vital, important new ways, to render feminist and queer knowledge as visible. And so, um, for those who are outside the library and archives world, it might seem kind of banal, it's like cataloging. But think about the long-term epistemological impacts of the work that um, all of these practitioners are doing in their, in, the, in, in their workplace. I mean, it's a really tedious, everyday work, um, but it's epistemological effects in the long-term on the work of feminist activists and academics is, is really tremendous. So, um, in conclusion, to return briefly to the, the scrap heap, rather than think about the scrap heap as evidence that um, we suffer from a legacy of no legacy, I want to suggest that the scrap heap in contemporary feminism is important along several lines. Um, as I've argued in this paper, if you turn your attention to feminist archives, what you discover is that this entire preoccupation with intergenerational conflict in the feminist community doesn't really hold, at least not in the way that Faludi and others have suggested. Um, you can walk into particularly a collection like um, the collections at Duke University and look at materials side by side from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and you just see you know, all of these lines of continuity that, that were kind of pushed under the surface to a certain extent um, in the intergenerational debates that happened in the 90s. 
Um, more importantly, I think that what the archival turn in contemporary feminism points to is that in sharp contrast to Faludi's claims, the scrap heap is not evidence of a feminist movement that is broken, but rather um, it's precisely where hope for continuing to imagine possible feminist worlds reside. So what's exciting and vital and contemporary about the work of my panelists, um, about what they're doing in their respective collections, is that their orientations to the past, to preservation, to history, are precisely the mechanism through which we continue to generate hope for feminist activism in the present. Thank you. So my question points to something you just said about the difference between a women's archive and a feminist, li uh, feminist archive. And my question is, how do you turn one into the other? Um, for instance, I'm with Newcomb College Institute at Tulane University, and we have the archives of Newcomb College, which was the women's college at, at Tulane. And so we have all these great things that have been contributed as alums pass away. For instance, the family gives us their materials. And I would like to make... I should say I'm not an archivist, so I maybe, but I would like to find a way to make that a productive space to do feminist research. How, how can we do that e easily? <laughs> um, I can start. In the, I, should, I should have also begun by saying that I'm not an archivist either. I'm a librarian who sort of stumbled into special collections librarianship. Um, I mean, to me, it's about the cataloging. It's really about trying to use appropriate terms, feminist terms, activist terms, just trying respectful terms to describe the stuff, and it may be affected by how you organize it. Um, that's my first thought. I was thinking, too, that um, one thing that I just started doing at my institution is actually um, trying to, because I'm a research and instruction librarian, so I'm not an archivist either, um, but really actively trying to connect professors with the archivist and sitting in on the meetings because the archivist knows what's in our collection in ways that I have no idea. And where a catalog search isn't even going to necessarily help me um, because I wouldn't go looking in the catalog for what Wellesley did during World War II, and yet apparently we have a really amazing collection of what Wellesley women did during World War II um, that wouldn't have showed up. So I think for me a lot of it is just putting people in conversation um, and also making sure that students just are aware and involved because they're going to be, I think especially where I'm coming from, you know, if they have really good methods, if they're getting the theory and getting the approaches in their classrooms, the professors should know that, the archivist should be able, you know, the archivist is savvy, they can have conversations. One of the really interesting things happening in a lot of archival collections in the last few, you know, maybe a couple decades is artists going in to archives. So archivists and librarians inviting visual artists, um, performance artists into the, their collections to use the materials in ways that academics might not use them. Um, and sometimes it's a way to render those precise histories you're talking about that maybe the donors are not committed to having come to the surface. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But if you have an artist or a uh, performer go in and work with the materials, um, they sometimes have a bit more agency. So I think that that's also interesting. Yeah. Thank you. This was really amazing. As a longtime activist who's now hiding in academia and hoping of retiring with some money, um, it's exciting to see some possible futures directions for my work. Um, so, I mean, in that context, for coming out from the last panel around the futures of gender and sexuality studies and the usage of the word centrifugal, I'm wondering 
what if the queer of color was in the center of this archiving history? How would your projects look like? Well, the collection at Barnard, people of color are not at the... There, it's Our collection development statement specifically says that we're trying to acquire zines by people of color just because I feel like within a collection of zines, which is about, to some extent, marginality, I really wanted to focus on people that were even within the margins of zine community. Um, but because it is a minority group, um, and I mean that like not because, oh, people of color are minorities, but because really within zine culture and community, there is... A, they're a minority presence. Um, but I've tried to really make that uh, an important point of our collection. And a lot of the researchers that have come in to use it have come specifically because it focuses on zines by people of color. Um, and I really encourage people to use it that way. And I myself, at some point, if I ever have the time, will write something about, you know, based on, on our collection. I don't know, is that... I wanted in the beginning to like even try to force the collection to be 50% people of color. And I know a lot, of, some of my best friends are zinesters of color. And they're like, yeah, that's a really nice idea, but um, it's not going to happen. Well, and can I just add? Yeah, I, please. I think the other thing that I would say too is that um, part of the work that's interesting to me that's beginning to happen in the archival profession, and it's happening at places um, like UCLA in particular, their um, information school, is the idea of, I mean, I think the limit that I see still happening is that it's like the archivist goes out and looks for a community mm. to document. And that's a good step. But I think also just trying to, to have archivists who are kind of already engaged in communities or aware or just, you know, recognize that um, documentation is already happening. Archives are already being built. Um, giving people an empowering, you know, giving them the tools for self-documentation and, you know, kind of thinking towards how you could collaborate and maybe not necessarily intervene and say, we need your collections now, but just say, you know, we'd like to learn how you're documenting, what you're doing, what kinds of organizational, you know, techniques matter for you, what kinds of documentation do you even produce, um, and not assuming that, you know, the ways that we think about doing things you know, from the archival world or the right way, but just being open to, like, where is knowledge being produced, in what communities, what, you know, what's, again, what's the context in which that's happening, and not trying to necessarily shoehorn it into archiving, you know, into archives as they exist now, but trying to just make sure that there's room to, like, be kind of reflexive about our own practices and just be in contact with those groups to say, you know, like at Northeastern, we have a really great social justice collection, um, think of us in the future, what can we do to help you now? I wanted to express thanks on behalf of my graduate students who are going to be using the resources you just outlined. They're working on zine culture and uh, queer autobiography. Um, I have a question about scale. To what extent has digitizing zines affected the way that zine creators think of their work and their audience? Because um, I imagine that you know the first zines that came out in the 1990s did not envisage an audience of the scale that you're allowing. Sure, I'll first. Um, and I think that that's an interesting situation because like with the case of QZAP, you know, there are a lot of zines that were created well before the idea of, you know, distribution online was even possible. So what happens now is um, Chris and Milo and members of the collective, anytime they get a zine before it's uploaded online, they, they kind of think of it as due diligence of trying to find who the creator is. Can they still contact them? 
that GeoCities site might no longer be active, but um, just trying to track down that person to see if it's okay for that to be available. Um, I think that for people who are creating for the archive now, there's a great awareness that you know this is going to be the distribution or to such an extent that you know I think that they try to not post something before the person who's made it has had a chance to distribute it under whatever means they want to distribute it. So if you want to sell your zine for a while, you can sell your zine for a while, and then they'll archive it. But then for other people for whom that's not really an issue, it'll happen immediately. Um, so I do think that there's, like, at this point, people creating and donating, I think that it's a great signal boost. I know for me that's why I want my stuff there. Uh, I, and also because I'm too lazy to go through zine distribution networks and you know, doing, like, that kind of work that was required, I think, at an earlier point. Um, you'll see what I just put up on the screen, which is an essay called Why We're Not Digitizing Zines, which huh. is by Kelly Wooten at the Duke University at the Sally Bingham Center. Um, and I tend to be in opposition a little bit mm -hmm. with Chris and Milo at QZAP. Um, I'm not in a big hurry to digitize zines for exactly the same reasons that Kelly isn't. Um, to me, the biggest things are that the zines that were written in the 90s, they were written by people that, like, you know, the World Wide Web was not really in the world yet. Um, and a lot of the people were 14 or 16, um, and they had no expectation that their stuff would be online. And people that are doing it now, unless they're too lazy, like, for me, like, no way is anyone digitizing my stuff. That's written for print distribution, semi-mostly controlled. Like, I'm just not interested in that. Um, so I'm actually not in any hurry to digitize zines. However, I get researchers asking me all the time, please digitize your zines. Um, it would be a huge copyright nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, I'm also powerfully attracted to print culture, and um, I feel like they would really lose something. I even don't like zine collections. Like, you know, I love the zine Doris, but I don't want to read 10 issues in a row, perfect bound, I want to read them individually and with some space between them. So I think we really do a disservice to zines to, um, uh, what do we call it in copyright land, change the format. Mm. So um, mm -hmm. I know it's really important and this stuff should be more accessible and I fantasize about contacting Alexander Street Press and saying, hey, let's do a zine archive. But I just... I'm also like, no, I know I should, but I should, but I should, but I should. Yeah, I would say that once again, that the, the real side of activism is not the digitization process, but rather the, uh, the kind of activism that Jenna um, and Alana and Emily are all engaged in at the level of the catalog and, you know, rendering, rendering these knowledges visible. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.